0: Uh, topic for this evening is the life of Meyer Lansky, known as the Chairman of the Board of the Mafia, the Mob's Accountant, or a variety of other names. He was bigger than U.S. Steel, just ask him, except he really wasn't. So Meyer Lansky was born in Grodna, the Tsarist Empire. He liked to call it Poland. In later years he said I was from Poland. There was no Poland, but he was from Poland. In the year 1902, or so it is claimed. He may have been born in 1900, we're not exactly sure. But for the record, he was born on July 4th, 1902. Of course, July 4th was not his real birthday, but he made it up. Why? Because he was an American patriot. When he came to this country, he loved America. Therefore, he took America's birthday as his own. So he's born roughly the summer of 1902 in Grodna. And... He comes from a religious family, a traditional family. His parents are Max and Yeda Sucholansky, the real name. And his grandparents were Benjamin and Basha Sucholansky. Benjamin was a reasonably successful uh, entrepreneur in the old world. His son, Max, Meyer's father, was someone who never achieved material success no matter what he tried. And so, Meyer didn't have any respect for his father, but he did have respect for his traditional grandfather. Grudna, uh experienced some dis- anti-Semitic disturbances, but was a rare example of a place that had Jewish defense squads, at least after the, the pogroms of 1903, the Kishinev era, Grodno had self-defense units, and from that, a little boy like Meyer learned the lesson that a Jew could use his fists and fight back and didn't have to take it from the Goyim. That was his attitude. In 1909, his father left for America. Where to go? That's the question. If it's dangerous here in Russia, Poland, do you go to Palestine, Eretz Yisrael, or do you go to America? And Benjamin, Grandpa Benjamin, said, we go to Eretz Yisrael. And Max said, we go to the Golden Medina. So Max went to America by himself to try to earn enough money to support a family to bring him over passage to America and Benjamin and Basha fulfilled their lifelong dream of going to Eretz Yisroel. They got there in the summer of 1910 and Max and Benjamin died a month later. Gets to Eretz Yisroel, there's no more any reason to live. He accomplished what he set out to do, to make it to the Holy Land and his wife died a month after that. They were in their 70s at that time, uh, which was old, you know, by the standards of the time. So, they, they, had money, they had money in the old country, but they spent their last resources on the trip to Israel, and when they died, they were paupers and had to be buried uh, by the Grudna There was a large grudnikolo of 2,000 people encompassed in that community of the old yeshuv uh, in Yerushalayim, and they paid for the expenses of the funeral. Okay, so Grandpa Benjamin and Basha are out of the picture. They will not return to the picture until 1970. Now, you might say, what, (laughs) t'chiyas amazim? The answer is, no, no, no. Meyer will go looking for their graves while he spends some time uh, in Israel. And he will find their graves, and it's a very meaningful moment to him. Okay, so Max is earning some money in New York, and he sends money back to to Grodna for the family to come over. Who is the family? Well, there's the wife, Yeda, and two boys, Meyer and Yaakov, Jack, Jake, Jacob. Later there'd be a daughter, uh, Esther. The problem is that on their way from Grodna to the port, Yedda is duped by people who were pretending to be well-wishers or uh, facilitating immigration, uh, and they were robbed of their ship tickets. And they were lucky that the philanthropy, uh, Jewish philanthropy, was willing to make up the difference and give them new new tickets for the ship, and they were able to make it to America. Okay. But Meyer learned a valuable lesson. Everybody's a con man. So they get to America. They live in Brownsville. And Meyer goes to school, to public school, and he does very well in public school. He's a good student, especially in math. Throughout his life, he'll be a very good math student, and he'll be uh, consistently studying math even after his formal education is over. They you change their name. Again? They don't. <laughs> they change their name to Lansky around that time. Yes, when they get to America, they change the name to Lansky from Suchalansky. Then the family moves in 1913 to the Lower East Side. Now, this should tell you something very important about the economic standing of Max Lansky. The Lower East Side is an area of first settlement. The neighborhoods in Brooklyn, including Brownsville, were neighborhoods of second settlement. So, you go from being a poor nobody on Rivington Street to being a less poor nobody on Pitkin Avenue. Not the reverse, the fact that they went in the wrong direction goes to show you that Max Lansky was not providing much of a living for his family. Okay, all right. About 1913. Okay. He was 11 years old. So, he's 11 years old. He goes to public school, Seward Park, and he's doing very well in school. At the age of 13, uh, he continues to go to Cheder, as per the wishes of his parents, through the age of 13, and is a goer through the age of 13. Life changes thanks to the Cholent pot. (laughs) What happened? So every Friday, there'd be the Cholent that was cold and it would have to be taken to the baker and the baker would charge a nickel for you to place your pot in his oven and to be removed after davening on Shabbos and everybody would have a lunch and then take a nap. Well, there was a craps game going on 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 the corner and it only took a nickel to be into the game and Meyer was enticed and so it was the, his mother's last nickel. And he played the game. And he lost. Oh. And there was no food, no hot chant the next day for Shabbos. He learned his lesson. What was the lesson? Don't, don't lose. <laughs> Not don't gamble, don't, don't lose. Don't gamble, don't lose. <laughs> okay. Now, what he, lo- what he learned was that the game was rigged. Not necessarily that the dice were rigged. That would be a problem later in life and he would correct those those issues. He would be an honest gambler later on. Uh, but the issue was that the, the house, there was no house, but the the, the the game organizer was in cahoots with someone to win a few times to make it appear to the outsiders that it was possible to make a buck here. But it was rigged so that, yes, he would win a few times and then other people would try their hand and would lose because the the numbers, the, uh, the percentages are in favor of the house. So, what did, so, so how did Lansky make money off the shell game if it wasn't his shell game? The answer is he was savvy enough to realize who was in, in on the shell game and put down his nickel or his quarter or his dollar seconds before the dice were thrown to attach himself to the guaranteed winner. And the house couldn't afford to reject the the bet because it would expose the fraud. Therefore, what? He wins guaranteed money on someone else's scam. Brilliant. Now, you can only do that one time with any given house. But fortunately for Meyer, there were many gambling operations all over the Lower East Side. It was a vice-ridden neighborhood at the time, and there was money to be had. Okay, now... Let's step, step back from the life of Meyer Lansky for a second and discuss what was going on uh, in New York, in the Jewish community, and especially the Lower East Side, in the 19-teens. So, in 1907, the Billingham Report, which was made by the police commissioner, accused Jews, and for that matter, other undesirable ethnic immigrant groups, of being disproportionately criminal, spe- but especially Jews. Now, there was plenty of truth to the accusation that there was rampant vice in the immigrant quarters, but the police department's report was unfairly targeting Jews and accusing our people of uh, predilection for criminality that is an unreasonable assessment of our character. In those days, the police were primarily Irish, I would think. Yes, yes. And I would think that there was a very large Irish immigrant population going um, going after the riots in 1860s and whatever it is, but, the, but uh, they were turning their the, heads the, the, away from the Irish, it would seem. Well, the Irish were the establishment at this point, and right. the Jews and the Italians and, for that matter, uh, some other un- undesirable groups were beyond the establishment and could be looked upon with disdain. So in 1908, Judah Magnus, together with some wealthy ph- Jewish philanthropists, established the New York Kehila which you probably never heard of. The New York Kehila was a, an attempt to recreate in America something that existed in the old world. The Kehila of the old world was an all-encompassing organization that you had to be a member of if you were a Jew in the pre-emancipation era. You were if you were a Jew, you were part of the Kehila. If the Kehila expelled you, because if you were in Cherem or something, basically you were left for dead, unless you converted to Christianity. So, the key law was this all-encompassing organization. You can't have that in America. We have separation of church and state. It's not just there's no need for it, it's not possible. So, to try to Create the key law in an American environment meant voluntary uh, participation by all sectors of the community. Is that really possible, knowing our uh, divisiveness? Not really. But for 14 years, from 1908 to 1922, the key law existed and it tried its best to issue reports about what was really going on in the immigrant quarters, what, what life was like, you know, the unfiltered uh, version of what. Jewish life was like in New York, and uh, yes, the, the reports were quite damning, the likes of which Meyer Lansky was participating in. Uh, the only lasting vestiges of the New York Key Ki- uh, Law was the BJE, the Board of Jewish Education, which I think still exists, and you know gives you a test when you're in 8th grade to get into high school. So, that's Lansky's situation. He drops out of school in 1917 at the age of 15, and he's developing a life of... Low-level crime. Mostly gambling, but also he tries his hand as being a stalker, which means throwing his weight around and using maybe a a metal pipe to use force. He was arrested two times in his late teenage years with a complaint coming from a woman, a different woman each time, but from addresses which were known to have uh, houses of ill repute. So he may have tried his hand at pimping. Um, but he quickly walked away from that and for the rest of his life would have nothing to do with narcotics nor prostitution. It was beneath his dignity. So, another famous story of Lansky's early life is how he met Lucky Luciano. Charlie, as he was known, not Lucky, Charlie Luciano. Charlie was the head of a gang of Italian ruffians on the border of the Italian district and the Jewish districts to the Lower East Side, and they came across Meyer and wanted to pickpocket him, take his lunch money. And Meyer fought back and used some choice language in the process, which we can't repeat here. And Lucky, who was about six years older than Meyer, was impressed at the pugnacious character of this little Jew boy. And so they developed a lifelong friendship. Of course, Meyer lived longer than Lucky. Lucky wasn't so lucky. <laughs> he would go to jail for a significant length of time, and we'll get to him soon enough uh, uh, in, the, in the war years. Okay. The other character we have to mention is Benjamin Siegel, otherwise known as Bugsy. But he hated the name Bugsy. He was Ben or Benny. And if you called him Bugsy, he'd punch you in the nose. Bugsy was four years younger than Meyer, and they went into business together during the Prohibition era. So let's discuss what happened in Prohibition. 1918 to 1933, you have a 15-year stretch of... uh, an opportunity for underworld elements to make their money off of the fact that liquor was illegal. Well, how do you make money off of prohibition? There are a variety of ways. One is you're the importer of booze, and you can import the booze by having ships dock outside of American territorial waters and then having speedboats go out to the, you know, beyond the harbor, beyond the 12 miles, and bring the booze in and hope to not get detected because your boats are too fast and you'll offload it pretty quickly. Or, the better way was have the big ship come right on into New York Harbor and bribe the longshoremen and the police. And as long as you pay the right people, in, in the broad daylight, you could bring in contraband. Okay, so Lansky was involved in the importation of illegal liquor and the distribution of illegal liquor. In the 1920s, he was still involved with the violent element of, organize, of what I wouldn't, I won't call it organized crime because it's not organized, but the criminal world. And people died, uh, courtesy of Murder Incorporated, which, with which Lansky was peripherally associated, although it was mostly Siegel, and then later Lepke Buchalter, who died in the electric chair in 1944 at Sing Sing. Did the- Lansky kill? Or did he- Lansky never killed anyone, as far as we know. He never killed a man. So- movie that we saw where he, where he kills Bugsy Siegel, that's not true. Okay, so w- in, when we get to 1947, we'll have to examine how connected was Meyer Lansky to the, the, to the murder, the assassination of Bugsy Siegel. The answer is yes, he was very closely connected to it, but it was against his wishes. Okay, so in 1920s, you need an honest source of living to cover up the fact that you're engaged in criminality. So what uh, what cover story do you have? The answer is... Meyer Lansky was involved in renting of cars and trucks in Manhattan, which you know, in and of itself could have been a very lucrative business. But as we will see throughout Meyer Lansky's life, whenever he tried to go straight, it was always unsuccessful. <laughs> his, his his successes in life were the criminality, not the honest businesses, of which he had several, and we'll go through them one at a time. So the truck rental business was was nominally profitable, but it was really just a cover For the liquor industry, okay, and the gaming rackets. Meyer's best work was in gaming, not really in liquor. Liquor was an adjunct to gaming. But where can you do the games? In uh, saloons, in pubs, and hope to get away with it. (coughs) Okay, speakeasies. In 1929, it's time to settle down. Okay, you can't live a life of uh, criminality without a good uh, sidekick wife. Okay, so he marries Anne Citron, a good Jewish girl. To get married, he first has to become an American citizen. He wants to make sure everything is kosher before the nuptials. So he applies for citizenship, and he becomes a citizen. After all, he had been in the country at that point for uh, eighteen years. Did she realize- She knows he's no chassid. She knows, and she asks too many questions, which will eventually kill the marriage. But, okay. Okay, so how does he become a citizen if he has a criminal record? And he had been arrested at that point a total of uh, five times. So the answer is no, not bribery. He had never been convicted of anything that rose beyond a misdemeanor. Charges have either been dropped or they were low-level offenses that carried with it only fines and not jail time. So he became a citizen, but he was dishonest in the form. Oh. And later, once he rose to the status of being a prominent figure in the underworld, the government would try to use that against him to find the justification for revoking his citizenship, and he would fear deportation to Soviet Russia because Grodno was in the Soviet, uh, behind the Iron Curtain. Okay, he would fear that, but it would never come to pass. Okay, he marries Anne Citrin, and they uh, they live in Manhattan, in a nice apartment in Midtown. And they have a son. Problem. The son is a cripple. Bernard, or Buddy Lansky. Now, Buddy would live to be 59 years old. He, he lived a... a, a I wouldn't call it a good life, but he lived a relatively long life for someone of his physical disability. He was mentally perfectly fine, uh, but he went through terrible treatments, uh, you know, horribly painful treatments all throughout his childhood and then even later in life to try to correct his deformities. Um, We'll get more to Buddy as we go along because the the Lansky family is relevant in his, you know, the broader scheme of things. The next son was Paul. Paul was about two years younger than Buddy. And Paul was the, the, the straight one, the honest one, who would later go on to West Point and become a lieutenant in the army and even later would become a bit of a Meshuggah and divorce himself not only from his wife but also from his children and the entire family. So there was nachas early on from Paul in that he got into West Point without interference by Meyer. Legitimately got into West Point. Big nachas. But later, no Annie married a shiksa. Oh, no Okay. Um, Buddy married a Jew, but would divorce her after a few years, and Meyer never liked her, thought that she was a gold digger, even though she really wasn't, and Buddy was addicted to prostitutes. The daughter, Sandra, was born in 1937, and was a wild child, Wanted a nose job when she was fourteen, and Maya refused it, but the second wife allowed it. Um, and she re- got married at the age of seventeen to a man who turned out to be gay, had a child with him, and then got divorced when she was eighteen. And then had another child who was mentally un- unwell, uh, and basically lived a horrible existence, and then stole the family fortune at the end. Okay, so those are the three children, and you know, and you get the story. There wasn't much left. We'll get to how much was left. Okay. In the 1930s, after prohibition comes to an end, it's not easy to make money. So, Meyer goes into the molasses business, Molasca Corporation, as a substitute for sugar in the production of, of hard liquor. It was an honest business. And of course, it failed. So where did Meyer make his money in the 1930s? The answer is, in gambling. But no longer was it the speakeasy in the urban environment or the, the dingy saloon, but rather in a carpet joint. A carpet joint. Now a carpet joint is not a place where they sell Persian rugs. What is a carpet joint? So it's the halfway house between the dingy uh, wooden floor saloons of the urban environment of the early 20th century and the casinos of the post-war era. It's that in-between phase where the place has a carpet. Right. Right? It's, it's upscaling that it has a carpet. It has a, maybe it has a cheap chandelier. And there's a restaurant. And there's a back room where there's games. And there's a show. And the show is to keep the women distracted while the men waste all the money on the, on the tables. Okay. Now, where do these... these uh, Carpet joints, uh, where are they located? That's the question. So the answer is, the answer is over the line, over the line. Three words, over the line. What line? Doesn't matter what the line is. Whatever the line is, it's over the line. So in in um, in a place like New York, New York City, so you can't have it in New York City because Mayor Laguardia and Thomas Dewey, the Manhattan District Attorney who would go on to become governor and uh, candidate for president, they're tough. They're cracking down on all these things. And there's a famous picture of Mayor LaGuardia in the East River on a barge throwing guns and slot machines over into the water. Okay, so you can't do it in New York anymore. You've got to go to Fort Lee, New Jersey, right over the bridge. They just built the George Washington Bridge, a beautiful bridge. You go over, you make you do a little gambling. But most importantly, Saratoga Springs, upstate north of Albany. So, Sar- so Saratoga... Every August, every August for a month was the mecca of New York area gambling. That's and Meyer. That's where the Rebbers go. No? The Rebels, <laughs> they, they went to Marienbad in, uh, in, uh, in Austria. <laughs> yeah. Wasn't it and also noted racing. for horse racing? So, so Saratoga had horse racing already. What Meyer did was introduce the gambling element of the casino games and also improve the, the reputable status of the horse racing. Okay, where else? The answer is Florida. Where in Florida? Well, it's not in Miami-Dade County, because they're going to be tough in Miami-Dade County. It has to be north. Hallandale. So Hallandale, and then later Fort Lauderdale, will be the places for gambling. Why Hallandale? There's only 500 year-round residents and if you bribe all of them and the police uh, uh, commissioner, you're in the clear. So Hallandale became the center of gambling, the Mecca for people who were staying in Miami and went up the drive, 20 minutes, half hour, uh, to do their, their, uh, their, their, their gambling, their, their, their game playing. But where else? So the really rich people, you'd go to Cuba. But Cuba had a problem. Cuba had a big problem in the 1930s. Batista comes into power for the first time. He's in power twice. He'll become in power again in the 50s, 52 to 59. But in his first go-around, um, there's a problem with, with, with gambling in Cuba. It's not uh, fair. It's totally dishonest and crooked. And the, the high-stakes bettors know this, and they don't want to go anymore. Moreover, even the horse racing was was rigged. And so horse trainers and horse owners were reluctant to send their high-priced thoroughbreds on a boat from America to Cuba with this risk involved to engage in phony racing. It was it was it was fake. So they brought in Lansky, who had a reputation for running an honest gambling operation. It was dishonest in that they're skimming off the top. In other words, there's non-payment of taxes and the distribution of profits are not done in a legal way, so it's, 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 it's criminal, but the, but the betting itself was not rigged. It was totally honest, and so if you were a high-stakes better, you liked going to a Lansky operation because it was fair. Okay. Is organized crime there yet? No. No. And organized crime is not really organized. <laughs> All right, so what happens next? In 1936, Lucky Luciano gets arrested. And Meyer is a free man. <coughs> Lucky spends the next six years in jail. Actually, actually, spends the next ni- nine years in jail, but he spends the next six years out of communication. But in 1942, all that changes. The war. The war and the sinking of U.S. merchant ships and military ships. Meyer is an American patriot. He wants to help. He volunteers for the draft. Wow. Now, he's 39 years old, so the government's not interested in his services. But the government is interested in preventing infiltration by German and Italian spies. And so they know that Meyer has this reputation of being an underworld boss, and they turn to him for help. He says, you got to go to Lucky." who's upstate, all the way upstate near the Canadian border, and we need to secure his cooperation because he controlled the waterfront and we can rat out German spies, anyone who's acting against the interests of the United States. Only question is, is Lucky Luciano willing to cooperate? But Meyer had a request. Bring Lucky down to Sing Sing. It's only 30 miles north of the city. I don't want to have to drive all the way up to the Yenemsville. The Ennev- the Ennev- the Ennev- <laughs> so they, they did him a favor. They brought him to Comstock, which is not far from uh, Albany, All right, they have a meeting. Lucky is surprised. Maya, my buddy, what are you doing here? We need your help. America needs your help. All right, they cooperate, and this is a successful enterprise. They rat out some some spies, and uh, the number of ships that are destroyed is decreasing, and uh, it was a a good American patriotic effort. What else does Maya Lansky do against the Nazis? The answer... In the 1930s, he disrupts the activities of the German American Bund. When, uh, when Fritz was going to give his speech in Yorkville, Meyer g- gathered together 15 of the Stalkers, of the Jewish Stalkers, and they busted heads and threw people out of uh, fifth story windows. Okay? Now, later in life, the question would be well, how did you have these Stalkers, and on what basis were you able to control people to throw people out of windows? You know, it must mean you were, you were a goon of some kind. He didn't like to talk about how he had the muscle to do these sorts of things. He was just proud that he did it for the sake of Jews. He liked the idea of a fighting Jew. He liked the idea of a fighting Jew, but not the idea of a pious Jew. His father and his mother complained that the children weren't going to Cheder, that Buddy and Paul were not getting a Jewish education. So Anne Citroen's parents also were complaining they're not getting a Jewish education. And one year, Anne put a Christmas tree in the apartment. And her parents came. They said, it's a Shanda. So which her, her response was, you don't like it? Get out of here. So Anne was a bit of a tough cookie when it came to, to the, the in-laws and her own parents. But she was also losing it. Mentally. She was asking Meyer too many questions about his business practices. She wanted to know. She knew things were not kosher but it bothered her and the children also knew that this was a phony life Paul the one who went to West Point accused his father of being a complete phony so there were fights between Ann and Meyer and eventually they uh, resorted to shock therapy for Ann that she was going mentally uh, unbalanced and she one time she she took uh, an apple put it on Meyer's head and took a knife and went like this and cut the apple on top of his head so that was the, the last straw. She was, in, she was uh, put in a mental facility. She was taken out of the mental facility. In 1947, she files for divorce. Divorce is finalized. She's out of the picture. She gets alimony of $400 a month. And she lives until 1987. She lived a long life, never remarried. She was like a, a kook, like a catwoman uh, on the Upper West Side, uh, living with the derelicts and the druggies. And occasionally reappearing, resurfacing in a somewhat sober state to take care of the grandchildren. Okay. So, with the war over, there are new opportunities for criminality. There's also opportunity for honest business. Now, bear in mind, after prohibition ended, certain of the people who were involved in bootlegging went straight. Like who? Bronfman. Bronfman was a big bootlegger and invented Seagram's. And Rosenthal uh, made Shenley. So there were people who went straight and made a lot of money and, uh, o- and owned corporations that made billions of dollars. Meyer Lansky is an underworld figure was purportedly worth later in life $300 million. It was a complete lie. He never was worth anywhere near that. At best, he was worth a few million. So going, going kosher would have been a much more lucrative way than remaining uh, uh, as part of the underworld. But, then again, Maya wasn't good at being in the, the uh, above-board world. So, in 1946, he goes in the jukebox business, renting out jukeboxes to, to uh, restaurants, to, to diners, and he made some money, made some money. It was good kosher money that could conceal the not-so-kosher money that he had from his various uh, Saratoga operations in Hallandale and the like. He also went into the TV business, and I don't mean show business or making of TV shows, I mean the physical TV business as a distributor of television sets, but he went belly up. That was not a good business for him. The the, uh, jukebox business was much more lucrative because that needed servicing. You had to fix it, you had to take the the coins out, There there was money, there was cash involved, Whereas the TV, once you sell the TV, it's, it's, it sits on the wall and you just keep watching it for the next 20 years. There's no servicing contract. Okay, so it wasn't easy to make an honest buck to cover the the dishonest dollars of the late 40s, early 50s. But there was an even bigger problem. And that is, the dishonest dollar was disappearing. Florida, Hallandale, Fort Lauderdale, all of a sudden in 1947 decided we don't want gambling anymore. That the... Uh, the high rollers of the, uh, of the late 30s, early 40s, mid-40s was finished. The people wanted to be engaged in, uh, in vice during the Depression because it took you out of your Depression. And during the war because it took your mind off the war. And in the immediate aftermath of the war because soldiers came home and didn't know what to do with a dollar in their pocket. But once America was sort of settling down to a more uh, comfortable Eisenhower-era you know, existence of uh, straight-laced suburban families, you don't want illegal gambling. So... That's out. But there's one place in America where you have legal gambling. And what's that? Nevada. Nevada. Las Vegas. Okay. So now we get to the issue of who killed Bugsy. Bugsy was running the Flamingo. Meyer owned a stake in the Flamingo. Bugsy did not invent Las Vegas. That's a, a, a fiction perpetrated by Francis Ford Coppola in The Godfather, that, that Mo Green somehow f- found Las Vegas. No! All right? Hyman Roth makes up a mishigas about Mo Green founding Las Vegas. No. There was, a, there was a casino there already in 1941. And there was a second one in 1943. The Flamingo was the third. All right? And at first it wasn't even successful. It was losing money. It was losing money. Okay, Then it made money. Then it lost money. Month to month it was fluctuating. Okay, So what happened was, the underworld figures... Who own portions of the action to Flamingo? They own points, as it was called, points of the skimming off the top. They said, We gotta kill Bugsy. And Meyer said, No, he's my friend. Because Bugsy's stealing. No, he was just incompetent. He wasn't making a profit. And the, uh, so there were, there were no profits to be distributed. The, the share the out sh- was non existent. the story of the is not true? What's, what's the. Yeah, Virginia Hill was his girlfriend. Yes, yes, yes. And she, she testified did. before the Kefauver Commission. Yes, that's all true. Okay, but. But why was he killed? The answer is they wanted money, they wanted the share, the, the payout, and it was simply non existent. Meyer finally agreed okay, you can have him killed. But he didn't like the fact that he had to give the okay. And in Beverly Hills, uh, M- uh, Bugsy took a shot through the eye. And so in the, the movie version is correct, the, the way they, they shoot him in the eye. Okay. Um, in the early 50s, There are two figures in politics... ...who are looking to make a name for themselves... ...by combating some kind of a dangerous element to society. You have Joe McCarthy and Estes Kefauver. McCarthy, the Republican, Kefauver, the Democrat. And each one chose its own boogeyman. One, the commies. The other, the mob bosses. So, Lansky was called to testify. And he didn't want to testify, but he had to. And he took the Fifth Amendment... And the the taking of the 5th at the time wasn't really so (coughs) problematic for him because he wasn't going to be charged with anything. But it was held against him in the 1970s in Israel, of all places, that he took the 5th Amendment in testimony before a committee, a congressional committee held in New York. Now, how that's possible, when we get to the 1970s, we'll discuss that. Okay, so the next big venture is Cuba. Back to Cuba. Batista's back in charge, and he wants people to clean up the situation at the National Hotel. Uh, They bring in Lansky. Lansky becomes a paid employee of the Cuban government to $25,000 a year, which is a nice, nice amount of money. What year? 1953. So, for the next few years, they're cleaning up operations at the existing hotels and running honest gambling. In 1955, the National Hotel, de- uh, at Lansky's uh, instigation, develops its own casino. They re- they refashion one wing of the hotel as a casino. Then, in 1957 or 56, the idea is to build Lansky's own casino from the ground up, the Riviera. It opens in late 1957 after 11 months of construction. Wait, this is in Cuba. This is in Cuba, in Havana. How long before Castro? Okay. The Riviera was open for a grand total of 13 months before the fateful night of New Year's Eve 1958 December 31st 1958. Uh, the the story goes and this was a false story and Lansky did everything he could to show that it was false was that he and some of the heavy hitters of the American crime families were on chartered flights out of Havana going to other places in the Caribbean on that very night before uh, Castro took over. False. It never happened. Lansky stayed in Havana, at the Riviera, with his wife Teddy, which I didn't mention her existence yet, but uh, we'll get back to her in a second. And they dealt with the new regime for a few days. And they dealt with the, the masses, the mob, to the best of their ability. Lansky was actually somewhat of a beloved figure in in Cuba. And the the mob wasn't about to lynch him. He employed a lot of people. They needed to work. They, They wanted the Riviera to be successful. The Riviera stayed closed from January 4th, or basically New Year's, through March. But then reopened and was trying to turn a profit, but unsuccessfully, for the next year and a half until it was liquidated and nationalized by Castro in 1960. But Lansky came back to Florida at various points in 1959, and he told the FBI, you're wrong about Castro. You, the FBI, the American government, think that Castro is some uh, reformer, revolutionary, without ideological basis. Whereas, in fact, what is he? He's an avowed communist, he's going to take over and nationalize everything, and he's an enemy of the United States. So Meyer Lansky, ever the the savvy uh, a student of uh, political science and history, he, tr- he fashioned himself something of an intellectual. He, in his in, in discussions that he initiated with the FBI, said, "You have to understand the nature of Castro. You're wrong about him. I know what I'm talking about." And he was on target. Okay. And he would later in life, you know, pat himself on the back that he knew what the American government didn't know. Now where get the money that okay. So the answer is that not all of it was his money about six million dollars of it was his money but he had he was skimming off the top in Las Vegas in Saratoga in Hallendale, in various other enterprises that he had he had some money he was, he was doing well in the 1950s he probably was worth a good ten million dollars at that time um, but he lost it all he lost it all because once the Riviera was nationalized there was no getting it back okay his second wife yeah have any connection with the Jewish community not that i'm aware of not that i'm aware of he, he has a jewish uh, renaissance in the 1960s uh, once his health starts declining and his financial fortune is declining as is often the case with people they turn to god when right. when life stinks all right okay so his his second his second wife her name was teddy Schwartz. he married her in 1948 and they would stay married for the rest of Meyer's life, for the next 35 years. Teddy, had a, uh, Teddy was 41 years old at the time. Meyer was 47. Um, and t- Teddy had a, a, a teenage son, Richard, Richard Schwartz, who for the next 30-some-odd years, well, 30 years exactly, would go around telling everyone, I'm Meyer Lansky's son. Now, he was Meyer Lansky's stepson. But why do you go around telling somebody, you're Meyer Lansky's son? Because you think it'll get you places that, that by by name dropping, you'll advance yourself in the world. Well, Meyer never liked him. They never really got along, and in the end, Teddy uh, Teddy's son Richard was a fool, and he got into a barroom fight in 1977 and shot someone to death. <laughs> Except that someone was a was a a, a mob member's son, and so. Uh, unsurprisingly, after he foolishly posted bail and went back to work in his Bal Harbor restaurant, what happened? He was shot to death. So, uh, Teddy's only child was murdered. Okay. Uh, when Meyer got remarried, he didn't want his children to know. How do you conceal the fact that you're married? Well, the answer is that Buddy was living not with, with Meyer at the time. He was living in a facility. Sandra was living with the mother. Paul was away at military academy and then went to West Point. So for about a year, he thought he could get away with not telling anyone he was married. Uncle Jack actually was the one who spilled the beans accidentally that Meyer had remarried this woman, Teddy, and the children and her never really got along all that well. Teddy was totally different from, from um, his first wife, Anne in that she didn't ask too many questions. She knew things weren't kosher, but it didn't bother her. She was gaudy, and she was uh, just loud. But Meyer loved her, and she took good care of him. Okay, so in the 1960s, Meyer uh, is no longer functioning as a mob boss, if he ever was one. He's struggling to find opportunities for a criminal profit. But he has legitimate profits from where oil and gas investments in Michigan and Ohio that turned nice dividends. But he was a fool. All of his honest businesses never never worked out well for him. He should have sold during the oil crisis of the seventies, when, when g- gas companies in America were worth real money because you couldn't impo- yeah, there was a, a, a dearth of foreign oil. But he didn't sell. It ended up going in the trust after he died in 83 and oil prices bottomed in the mid 80s and so the family was trying to live off of this trust there really wasn't anything there okay so another mistake that he made in 1962 he went to israel on vacation and he loved it he loved israel and he joined a shul in hollywood and then he would when we moved to miami beach he joined the shul in miami beach and he was close to his rabbis and he gave money to the shul he donated nicely to jewish causes in 1967 he gave big donations during the 6-day war to Israel causes. But then in 1968 things change. The Flamingo was sold. Meyer got his money, a million dollars, legitimate money from the sale of the Flamingo. He put the money in a Swiss bank account run by Tibor Rosen- Rosenbaum. That that bank later would go bank uh, would go bankrupt and the money would disappear. So Meyer was destitute towards the end, as we shall see. But um, he gets arrested on a narcotics charge in 1969. It was a bogus narcotics charge. It was for prescription medication that he really had a prescription for. But he could see the government was after him. The FBI had been trailing him uh, in his home in Florida for, for years. And it was becoming untenable. And he realized the government wanted him on something more serious. So in 1970, he goes to Israel but he makes a big mistake. When you go to Israel as a Jew, what can you do? Law of return. Law of return, which means you're a citizen. He didn't do it. His American lawyer foolishly told him to go as a tourist and don't take citizenship yet. But the government is now after him. In 1971, well, actually in 1970, Lansky's lawyer goes to the FBI and asks a question Uh, are there any pending cases against my client? Why? Because we're looking to uh, have Meyer take Israeli citizenship under the law of return, but we want to make sure that the application is not going to have a problem because the law of return was amended in 1954 to keep out criminal elements who would pose a danger to the welfare of the state of Israel. So we want to know, how is the U.S. government going to handle such requests? Isn't he signaling a problem? Okay, so it was a mistake in hindsight... But bear in mind what what the issue is here. In the 1950s, the government was considering pursuing deportation charges against Lansky and stripping him of his American citizenship on the grounds that he lied when he applied for it. So if the government of America is interested in washing their hands of Meyer Lansky, maybe they're in favor of him moving to Israel and taking Israeli citizenship as a Jew. So that's the question. What is the attitude of the American government? And the answer is that Nixon, really Mitchell... Uh, the Justice De- Department wants to pursue him vigorously. They want to go after him. Okay. So, it's a problem now, because if he applies for citizenship, it may be rejected. All right. Well, what happens? The government uh, subpoenas him, and he doesn't listen to the subpoena. So, he gets charged with obstruction of justice, of, uh, not, uh, of, of uh, not, not, not adhering to the court's rulings. That's one charge. Another charge related to, supposedly, he was running junkets for gamblers at the Colony Inn Hotel in London and was, uh, was involved in international racketeering. A third charge related to uh, not paying of taxes on money that he got from the Flamingo. So there were three charges separately pending against him. But he's in Israel and he doesn't want to come back. So what happens now? He has to take citizenship. So he applies for citizenship with, with, with an Israeli lawyer. He's living, he was living in Tel Aviv. But, he didn't, but Tel Aviv, it was, he was being followed by the paparazzi too much, so he moved to, uh, to Herzliya Pituach. And he applies for citizenship. Who decides the case? The Ministry of the Interior. Who is the Minister of the Interior? Rabbi Dr. Yosef Berg. So, as the head of the Mafdal. He controls the interior ministry, which was the arrangement that the maftal had with the government for many, many years, that they would control that ministry and and control matters of Jewishness. So no one doubts that Meyer's a Jew. No one doubts that Teddy's a Jew. Okay? No one even doubted that Bruiser the dog was a Jew. Okay? And he used to walk with Bruiser on the streets of of, uh, Herzliya every day. Meyer really loved Israel. He wasn't just going to escape American justice. He really wanted to be in Israel. And he found his his grandparents' graves on Harz 18 in 1970. When he came, he loved the country. It was it, it allowed him to be a Jew finally, a real Jew. But Berg says, "I don't know. I have to reserve judgment." So he's waiting. He's waiting. He's thinking about it. He goes to Golda Meir. Golda Meir says, Oh, who's Lansky? I never heard of Lansky. Golda was busy with other things, with Gunnar Yaring, with the Egyptians, with the, with the War of Attrition. Okay. And Berg says one word that tips her off, Mafia. Golda says, Mafia? Our ah, out of here. Get him out. We can't be seen as uh, being a haven for Jewish uh, mafiosos. Now, some say, Yesh Omrim, that her real concern was the sale of phantom jets by the Pentagon to the Israeli Ministry of Defense and that if, uh, if America was so concerned about Lansky, and Israel was uh, right. preventing, the, 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 bringing Lansky to justice, that they would stop to sell the Phantoms. But that's not really true, because the Phantoms were already, uh, br- the deal was a, it was a done deal. Right. That was not a big issue. It could have been used by those who didn't want the deal to go through. It, it okay, right. it could be used by, as an excuse by those who didn't want Lansky but to say right. that we needed to not take Lansky because it might affect something bigger. Okay. So, in 1971, the uh, Israeli government sends Gavriel Bach to America for two weeks to gather all the evidence that they can against Lansky. Why? Because Berg refused Lansky's petition. Lansky will sue, will sue the government of Israel as the plaintiff arguing that that the Ministry of the Interior had violated his rights in rejecting the the law of return application for citizenship. So in a rare example, Lansky was a plaintiff and the government was the defendant. But in order to defend themselves, they sent Gavriel Bach to gather all the the information they could from all the files in the the American justice system, the FBI, the district attorney's office in Manhattan, and so on and so forth. Who was Gavriel Bach? So, if you remember, he was the the the, uh, the the lead lawyer in the Eichmann trial, and would go on to become a, a member of the Supreme Court. and it was a very important figure in, uh, in Israeli history. So he goes; he collects all the evidence. They're ready for trial. Trial happens in Jerusalem in uh, the spring of 1972. It's argued over a four-day span, and ultimately there's a unanimous decision by the Agronat Court. That Berg acted within his jurisdiction in rejecting Lansky's petition for citizenship. Why? Because even though most of the damning evidence was inadmissible in court, even though it was inadmissible in court, it doesn't matter. Because as Minister of the Interior, Josef Berg is not functioning as a judge, he's functioning as a government bureaucrat who has to take into consideration what the average reasonable person would consider. Which means that hearsay is admissible. And, you know, fictional accounts are admissible. In other words, everything is admissible. Whatever the average Joe would believe, Joe Berg also could believe. Alright? That's the idea. The court ruled five to nothing. Goodbye, Lansky. So he he sticks around Israel for a few more months uh, because he doesn't have to leave just yet. He can't be a citizen and his American passport was cancelled so the only place he could go would be America except he doesn't want to go to America because he'll be arrested right as soon as he gets there and he can stay in Israel theoretically as long as the government doesn't deport him which they're not quick to do so they weren't so fast to deport him but it was coming it was coming he, he would have to act he would have to move on eventually So maybe he could find a place to go. The state of Israel issued him a laissez-passer, where he could go on on this pseudo-passport anywhere that would take him. But where would he be taken? No country wants him because he's a fugitive of American justice. So the Honorary Consul General of Paraguay in Israel is willing to cooperate. And so a scheme is hatched whereby Mr. Meyer, not Meyer Lansky, but Mr. Meyer, will travel together with, uh, with uh, Yaskar Scheiner, who had been uh, the head of security in the Prime Minister's office and was a friend of Lansky, on a worldwide journey to eventually make it to South America. Lansky was not, was not such a learned guy when it came to international affairs. He, he really wasn't. He didn't even know what Paraguay was, actually. Um... To look on a map, Meyer. that's where it is. So, he goes on an L.L. flight to Zurich, where he gets some money. And from Zurich, he's supposed to go to Rio. And from Rio to Buenos Aires, and Buenos Aires to Paraguay. Along the way, he's worried he's being trailed. And he was being trailed. But it was the 1970s, and technology isn't all that advanced. There's no email yet. There's telefax, the teletype, but but um, if it's the wrong hour and the bureaucrats are at dinner or home sleeping because it's midnight, no one's going to see that fax. And so, Interpol or the FBI or whoever was supposed to be trailing him lost track of him after Zurich. He got to South, he got to Rio unscathed. He got to Buenos Aires unscathed, but then they caught up to him. Problem for the for the the, 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 the feds and for uh, the uh, the police authorities is that they already left the airport. They had a tra- uh, and Meyer had transit visas uh, in Argentina, t- waiting for their uh, next leg of their journey to Paraguay. So they were they were out of the airport. Meyer decided to go to a barbershop and take a shave, and then they went back into the airport. By the time they got back to the airport, all hell broke loose because the police were everywhere and they were looking for Meyer Lansky. Had he not gone back into the airport, he could have stayed on the lam indefinitely and could have just disappeared into the woodwork. So his bad muzzle, he went back into the airport waiting into the hands of the authorities. All right, he gets on the plane. The plane is going northbound. But little does he know that after multiple stops uh, further north and in Central America that the last leg of the journey of that plane was Miami, Florida. Yeah. So, the, he, 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 he didn't want to get off the plane into the hands of, of any authorities. Sure. And the, So the Americans said, fine, stay on the plane, because its last uh, destination is our jurisdiction. When you get off the plane there, we'll just arrest you. And that's what happened. So, uh, along the way, Meyer got horribly ill and may have had something like I think of a minor, minor heart attack while on the plane. He, he was, it was a 36-hour journey, which was 13,000 miles and se- seven stopovers, and eventually Meyer Lansky ended back in Florida. It's a sad tale of a guy who almost made it, but then got stuck. Okay. Now, in the movie version, what happens next? He gets shot at the in the airport. Hyman Roth is assassinated by one of uh, Michael Corleone's goons in the airport, and then the and then the goon is himself killed by the police. In the real life, that's not what happened. In the real life, he, he went to the hospital because he was horribly ill, and, and there was supposed to be a doctor waiting for him, and, they, and the feds mixed you know, that version of the deal. There was no doctor for him. Someone had to get him a, a piece of uh, bread and cheese and a cup of water to, to settle his stomach because he had horrible ulcers. All right, he goes to the hospital, fine. Meyer's bad health plays an important role over the next few years in delaying his various trials. There were three trials. Obstruction of justice for, delaying, for not responding to the subpoena, the the, 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 colon, the colony in, uh, case of uh, racketeering, and the Flamingo skimming uh, trial. He was convicted in the obstruction of justice case that went first, and sentenced to a year and one day in jail. It was immediately appealed. And on appeal, it was overturned, because the government really had uh, shot itself in the foot. They only gave Meyer a few days to respond knowing that he was in Israel and in ill health and so his lawyers were able to convince the appellate uh, the court that this was bogus and that it was un- unreasonable for him to respond that quickly and of course he wasn't, had no intention to respond but <laughs> still the government made an error of judgment and as a result it was thrown out on the second case the colony in case he was acquitted and in the third case he never went to trial the, 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 the Flamingo IRS case why? because there was basically no evidence so by 1976 Meyer Lansky was totally cleared of all his various uh, Justice Department issues Okay, no he's a citizen of the United States of America they never did they tried they never did they never were successful doing it in 1977 there's a major change in the Jewish world what's that? Menachem Begin Okay. so when Menachem Begin won Meyer Lansky had an idea in his head I could go to Israel those labor rats are out of power, and the good starker Jews, the, the, the Likud is in power, maybe I'll be able to go and become a citizen or at least visit Israel. What's the problem? Meyer was told, that's not how it works in Israel. There are coalition governments. And that old mafdal rascal, Joe Berg, Yosef Berg, is still the interior minister. And he's not going to change his mind. So you can't go and be a citizen of Israel. Ah, he was very deflated. He didn't like that. It was, he really wanted to go to Israel. He loved Israel. He couldn't go as a tourist. We'll see. He he could, but it didn't work out. He writes a personal letter to Menachem Begin asking to be allowed to go to Israel, recalling that he had run guns for the Haganah in 1948 and that those guns actually ended up in the hands of the Irgun. So, and that he had raised money. He had raised money for for. Uh, for the state of Israel in its form in its uh, formation in 1948, when Golda Meir had come to America to raise money, Lansky had been a, an important person in raising that money. And of course, 23 years later, May- Golda was the reason why he was kicked out of the country. So it goes, it goes to show you sometimes uh, favors are not repaid in the right way. Hakarzatov. But he was right. Everybody's a con. Everybody's a con. You're right. <laughs> so. He, he, tried, he applied for a tourist visa multiple times between 1977 and 1980 and was repeatedly rejected. In 1980, Yoram Sheftel, who had been one of his lawyers, a young lawyer, said, I have a way of getting you back into Israel. And he was able somehow to arrange a deal whereby Meyer could visit Israel for one month on a condition that the government knew exactly the address where he was staying and he would have to post a $100,000 bond that he would leave the country at the end of 30 days. And Myers said uh, two words, each word has four letters. The first word starts with F, and the second word starts with B, and the second word was the name of the interior minister. And he said regarding those restrictions on his activities. Uh, he said no. Now, there were two reasons why. Meyer Lansky didn't want to pay the 100000 One, it was on principle that he objected to the idea that a Jew should, should have to post bond to visit the land of his ancestors. And number two, he didn't have the money. Meyer was going broke. He had no legitimate source of income for a long time and wasn't working. He was just a retiree in Florida living in a fairly small uh, apartment. Okay. Um, did he, have some security? he did. He, paid in. he did. He paid in. So... <laughs> In 1983, we're running out of time, Meyer Lansky uh, dies, January of 83, at the age of 80, after some pretty bad illness, lung cancer, part of his lung taken out. Uh, Life wasn't good at the end, in terms of uh, ill health. But the question was, how much money did he have? So, there had been all these stories that he was worth $300 million dollars. But those stories were entirely made up. And one of the worst things that ever happened to him in terms of his legacy was that he was acquitted and that charges were dropped against him. In other words, the truth never had to come out. But, but precisely because the truth never came out, the legend could remain. But the legend was that of a wealthy man, as you know, the, the, C, the chairman of the board of the mob, which he clearly wasn't the last 20 years of his life if he ever was. So, you know, he had a ve- very modest Leviathan. So, he had a very, very modest levaya, And there are pictures of it. I'll show you a picture of it. His brother Jack, sitting there with a yarmulke. Alright. He's right at Mount Nebo Cemetery in West Miami. Now here's a picture of the Leviah. There's Jack, the brother, with a yarmulke and the bow tie. There's Teddy crying her eyes out. And there's Esther, the, si- the, the sister. Um, so... No, no, no. Sister. Sister. The daughter was Sandra. So what happened to the money? So it turned out he was worth $37,000. That's all he was worth. But other money came into the picture courtesy of his friend uh, Vinnie Allo who recovered some assets that were unknown to the family. It were three hundred thousand dollars. It was supposed to go a hundred thousand to Buddy, a hundred thousand to Sandra, and a hundred thousand to Teddy. Paul was excommunicated, he was out of the family. He was the, the, the West Point graduate who gave him nachas in the beginning, but who married a Shiksa and then disappeared from the family. So Sandra got her hands on Buddy's hundred thousand and wouldn't cough it up. She was a real piece of work. Buddy's problem was that he was paralyzed. And who was going to take care of him? All throughout his life, his father, Meyer, for all the fights that they had and the the, the lack of nachas and the the disgrace, the embarrassment that Buddy was to Meyer, still it was his son. He took care of him. But towards the end, Meyer didn't have the money to pay for a 24-hour nurse. And Buddy couldn't even feed himself. He was was, uh, becoming uh, totally paralyzed. Uh, Ultimately, Buddy died in 1989, uh, effectively killing himself because he didn't want to suffer from the pain anymore. But there was no money to take care of him. Um, Teddy died in 1987 um, she also was living modestly towards the end there really was no money to be, sp- uh, to, to be had from the Lansky estate except and this is the, the, key, the key point except for his brother Jack Jack who you see here sitting, uh, sitting at the funeral and sitting shiver he was worth real money why? Because the, the kosher funds that Meyer earned, he almost never put in his own name. The Trafe money was money he pocketed, which he lost over the years in various ill-fated ventures. But the kosher money often was put in the name of relatives, specifically his brother Jack. Why? To spread around the tax liability and to, to cover their bases in case someone went to jail. So in the end, what happened? The senior partner, Meyer, left nothing to his heirs. The junior partner, Jack, left a lot of money to his heirs. That's a lot. Close to a million dollars. That's a lot. That's a lot of money by the by the standards of the nineteen eighties. Uh, it's not thirty seven thousand. So. A lot money today. So that, that 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 was the story of Meyer Lansky, huh? What was Jack's business? Jack was 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 in in the, in the gambling business in Florida. And also, he uh, was in the gambling business in Cuba part part, part of the time. Well, Basically, he did all the things that Meyer did, but uh, <laughs> as a junior partner on a lower scale. Well, okay. Was he an accountant, Ryleansky? Supposedly for the mob. Yeah. that accurate? so? Meyer was not a CPA. Meyer graduated eighth grade. Yeah, but he's good. Okay, at math. he was good at math. So he studied math as an adult and had a math tutor, and he could rattle off uh, answers to, to mathematical equations. And he tried to impress people that way. It was important to him that people should think he was smart, and he was. But he was not an accountant by any uh, but professional sense. He had sense. all the information in his head. And down. So th- what he did was avoid a paper trail. It was very important to him. Don't write things down. Keep all your business in your head, and. He lived his life that way. There was limited uh, paper evidence to uh, connect him to various things that w- which he was truly connected. Did that keep him alive? Is that why he was it alive? It kept him out of jail. No. I don't know if it kept him alive. Kept him from the mob, because I mean, they killed off their own people. They so you know? there was no serious attempt ever made on Meyer Lansky's life by the mob. Uh, in that respect, he was lucky because I mean, a lot of other people right. were were killed or had attempts made against them that were not successful, but you know, were were scary. Yeah. Yes. What is his life, the difference? Oh, okay. That's the classic what-if question. Yeah. Number two, he was exonerated from everything. Why was Israel so reluctant to take him back? Okay. So the answer to the first question is that it's a, it's a, it's a subjunctive question. What, would it, what if he would have taken law of return citizenship immediately upon arrival in Israel and not waited, as his lawyer had advised him? So the answer is that the, the litigation would have been very different, because the, the government of Israel would have then had to try to strip him of citizenship that he had already had, as opposed to prevent him from taking on citizenship. So instead of Lansky being the plaintiff in a lawsuit against the Interior Ministry, he would have been possibly the defendant uh, in, a, in in a trial concerning you know, sh- stripping him of citizenship on the grounds that he got it uh, through uh, illicit means, that he was dishonest in terms of his representing his character, most likely, most likely the government of Israel would have had a very hard time deporting him if he was already a citizen. So the error of judgment. Probably, we could say, did affect the outcome that he would have lived his life out in Israel as uh, a private citizen in Herzliya Pituach, walking his dog every day, and living and having fancy breakfasts. So the the answer is because the shame, ra, the bad name that he had, uh, the legend was more important than the facts of the American justice system. uh, Bear in mind that when gavriel bach pursued the case for the government and the court the high court of justice decided that berg acted within his rights as the minister of, uh, minister of interior it was on the grounds that you don't have to have admissible evidence court admissible evidence to say the guy's a bad guy it's enough that it's true now what's true true is what i say is true if people believe it you know, like Donald Trump says, people believe it. Mm-hmm. So, if enough people believe that he's a, the, the the kingpin of the mafia, it doesn't matter that the American courts exonerated him. It's not fair. It's not fair. And there were many people in Israel who felt fir- very firmly that Marolansky was was gypped out of his uh, uh, his heritage as a Jew, and that even if he was a, not a saint, he wasn't the worst sinner, and he should have been allowed to stay in Israel. But it yeah, didn't but work out good. that way. It was a question of foreign relations, and uh, ultimately, Lansky paid the price. Okay, we'll stop here.